In order to redeem someone, there are certain requirements you must meet. In this message from David Platt, we'll see how Boaz fulfilled these requirements in Ruth chapters 3 and 4. We'll also see how Boaz's act of kindness pointed to something or someone much greater. Welcome to the Radical with David Platt podcast, the latest sermons from teacher, author, and pastor David Platt delivered weekly. As always, you can find more gospel-centered, missions-minded resources at our website, Radical.net. The story of Ruth ultimately points us to what God has done for us through Christ, our Redeemer. We have been brought from death to life and from despair to hope. Here's David with part three of an Advent sermon titled, Hope for the Hurting. If you have a Bible, and I hope you or somebody around you does that you can look on with, let me invite you to open with me to Ruth chapter three. Is the book of Ruth not incredible? Like today we come to part three of three in this lead up to Christmas in the book of Ruth. And for those of you who are wondering what in the world this story has to do with Christmas, today is your day. Because today we come to the climax of this story, to the ending of all endings and the surprise of all surprises. Have you ever read a book or watched a movie and something happens at the end that makes you look back at everything that happened before it and think, now it all makes sense. Well, that's gonna happen today in a way that I pray will encourage and maybe change your life. I know there are people visiting here today, some of you maybe home from college or visiting family or visiting friends here at Christmas. Regardless of the reason, I don't believe it is an accident that any one of you is here today to hear this story that has the power to change your life. And some of you might, may find yourselves putting on one of these t-shirts just like happened after our first gathering, being baptized as a follower of Jesus in a way that you did not see coming. So we have a lot of ground to cover. Let's jump right in. If you've missed one or both the last couple of weeks, let me summarize the story so far. So it all started with Naomi and her husband Elimelech and their two sons left the promised land of Bethlehem and moved to the despised land of Moab. When they got to Moab, Elimelech died and both of Naomi's sons died. And she was left with two Moabite daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth. Naomi decided to go back to Bethlehem and Orpah stayed in Moab, but Ruth committed herself to Naomi. So they came back to Bethlehem with two main problems that the story needs to solve. First, they need food, provision. And second, they need family to take care of them. And when Naomi came back to Bethlehem, she was hurting with what felt like no hope of either of those problems being solved. All she had at this point was a despised Moabite daughter-in-law named Ruth by her side. Until one day, that daughter-in-law just so happened to find herself in the fields of Boaz, a knight in shining armor from the clan of Elimelech. And Boaz went out of his way to provide for and protect Ruth. And a romantic chapter two closed with the first need met. Ruth and Naomi had food, but they still lacked family. And Boaz didn't seem to be taking any initiative to solve that problem, which is where we left off last week. We read the beginning of chapter three as Naomi concocted a plan for Ruth to take some initiative to go to Boaz at night on the threshing floor, lie down next to him and uncover his feet. And 
and we're not sure all that means, but we do know this was daring and dangerous. So I need to pause here and show you some art that one of the kids at MoCo drew last Sunday during the sermon. So this is the book of Ruth in pictures. <laughs> Look at the bottom. You have Ruth gleaning in Boaz's fields. Then in the middle, you have Naomi uh, shouting at Ruth, telling her what to do. Then at the top of the page, you have Ruth laying down at Boaz's feet at night. So tasteful, not too graphic, it's good. One of, one of my kids last night said, Dad, tomorrow is part three. Does Ruth uncover the right legs? So let us see. Chapter three, verse six. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. And let's pause there. Can you imagine this? Like put yourself in Ruth's shoes at this point. She has snuck into some hiding place near the threshing floor. She's sitting there quietly watching. Like this is intense. You can almost hear her heart beating nervously. This is romantic. She's watching her man winnow and... As his work draws to a close, he goes to the far end of the grain pile where no one else happens to be. He lies down, he looks up at the stars and quietly drifts off to sleep while Ruth sits back waiting, watching for clues to know when he's fallen asleep. Like I think about nights when my kids were babies and we were trying to get them to sleep and I'd lay them down in their crib and rub their backs until they fell asleep. And I'd watch, thinking them, thinking, okay, I think now they're asleep. I think I can make my exit. So I'd slowly lift my hand off, stop rubbing their back, and they just pop up, as if to say, so soon? No. <laughs> and I put it back down, just keep going again. You've been there before. So Ruth does not want to move too soon. So she waits until it's time. Verse seven continues. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. Whoa. There she is. She has done it. Ruth has uncovered Boaz's feet. She's laying down either perpendicular or parallel to him. We don't know. What we do know is that her heart is beating really fast right now, and the audience is squirming with fear and excitement. Like, what is going to happen next? Verse 8 says, At midnight, the man was startled and turned over. And behold, a woman lay at his feet. So something startled him. Most commentators think that it's the cool breeze on his legs probably kicked in and woke him. So he reaches over to cover himself and to his amazement, he sees a woman. Behold, the text says, a woman. You know what I have in my mind here? Like, undoubtedly, Ruth was awake, right? It's not like she had fallen asleep there, lying right next to Boaz. So she's laying there, looking at him, just waiting for the moment that he wakes up. <laughs> I think about times as a dad, when I've either fallen asleep on the couch or in bed, and all of a sudden, I kind of sense something wake me up, and my eyes open, and I see two eyeballs right in front of me. <laughs> And one of my kids just standing there two inches from my face. And as soon as my eyes open, they say, want to come out and play with me? 
So that's what I'm picturing here. Boaz rolls over, opens his eyes, and two eyes are just staring right back at him. And here's what I love. Listen to what he says, verse nine. He says, and he said, who are you? <laughs> like, I want to know how he said that. Like, I wish we had a little more on the tone. Like, what was the sound of Boaz's voice here? Because it, there's so many different options. Like, was it a confused? Who are you? Or was it a shock and awe? Who are you? Or was it a, was it a simple whisper? Who are you? <laughs> I don't know. But this question is so significant. Like, this is the question of the book. Who is Ruth? The Moabite? Because she looks a lot like an Israelite in this whole story. Who is this woman? And Ruth responds. She answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Now, pause here. She had referred to herself as Boaz's servant once already in the book, back in chapter two, verse 13, to refer to someone on the lowest rung of the social ladder. But here, it's translated the same, but it's actually a different word in the original language of the Old Testament. The word here refers to a woman who is eligible for marriage, which leads directly into Ruth's next statement. She said, I'm Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. Now, this is where things get really interesting because if you notice, Ruth just left Naomi's game plan behind. Naomi had said, uncover his feet and he will tell you what to do. So the audience is listening. After they hear Ruth identify herself, they're waiting for Boaz to have the next word. But Ruth keeps going and says, spread your wings over your servant, which was a common phrase in that day for the protection a husband would give his wife in marriage. So talk about bold. The audience is wondering what in the world just got into Ruth because she just outright said, you're a redeemer, which means you can marry me. This is extraordinary. A servant telling her boss he can marry her. A Moabite telling an Israelite what he can do. A poor woman giving instructions to a rich man. This is forward to say the least. And she uses the same language that Boaz has used, had used back in chapter two when he prayed that the Lord would give Ruth refuge under his wings? Well, Ruth just said, hey, Boaz, you know that prayer you prayed for me? Well, you can be the answer to that prayer if you will take me under your wings as your wife. You gotta love it when your wife uses scripture on you. <laughs> but the picture here is bigger than even just Ruth because as a redeemer, there would be a responsibility to care for Naomi also. Ruth is appealing to Boaz to protect not only her, but her family. So the audience waits to see what in the world Boaz is gonna do. You can feel the tension in the air. Imagine the shock on Boaz's face, the thoughts that are running through his head as Ruth speaks to him. And then finally he responds, verse 10. And he said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first and that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. We breathe a sigh of relief. He speaks to her in kind, affectionate terms, my daughter. And it's clear, even amidst the sensual overtones of this scene, Boaz has no intention of taking advantage of her in any way. He is struck now for the second time by her kindness, which by the way is the word has said that we talked about last week, that she would pursue him. So he says, verse 11, and now my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. 
want to know something really interesting here? The original reader, original order of the Hebrew Bible is different from the ordering of our Old Testament. And many people believe that Ruth originally came right after the book of Proverbs. So imagine finishing Proverbs and reading, if you remember the end of Proverbs chapter 31 about the excellent wife, and then turning the page and reading the story of Ruth. And coming to chapter three, it's the exact same language in the, orig- in, the, in, the, in the Hebrew here in Ruth 3, verse 11, that's used in Proverbs chapter 31 to describe that woman. This is so good. But then we get to verse 12. So at this point, we are ready to see this marriage happen, like right now. We can almost hear the wedding bells in the background. But listen to what Boaz says. And now it is true that I am a redeemer. Yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Oh, no. Houston, we have a problem. There is somebody else. There's another guy who has the first right to redeem, to provide for and care for Ruth and Naomi. So I'll explain more about that in a minute. But Boaz tells her, verse 13, remain tonight and in the morning, if he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So Boaz says, stay here by my side. You don't need to be out in the middle of the night alone at this point. You wait. And first thing in the morning, I'm gonna go and see if this other man wants to redeem you, which he can. So see the integrity of Boaz here. He's a man of standing, of noble character. But he also says, if this guy won't redeem you, I'll do it in a heartbeat. And with that, they fall asleep. Or maybe not. I've got a feeling feeling both of them were lying there thinking, what in the world just happened? Like Boaz thinking she came after me. She wants to marry me. Ruth realizing tomorrow I'm going to find out who's going to marry me. Either Boaz or this other guy I don't even know. Regardless, she knows that tomorrow everything is going to change in her life. And with that, the two of them lie there looking up into the stars. Until verse 14, she lay at his feet until the morning but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. Like, get up, Boaz says, let's just let this be our little secret. He says, verse 15, bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city. So he's gonna make sure she's provided for six measures of barley, which some estimate could be up to about 75 pounds. She carries it home. I'm telling you, Ruth did CrossFit. She comes back to Naomi, which side note, here's another person who hasn't slept all night. Just imagine Naomi back home, pacing back and forth across the floor, praying here and there, occasionally peeking out the door, looking to see if anything has gone wrong, if Ruth is headed back home. Verse 16 says, when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, how did you fare, my daughter? And it's interesting, the language there is literally, who are you, my daughter? Now, it's translated this way because that's the meaning behind the language. How did things go? But it's basically saying, how did things go? Are you going to be his wife or not? Like, this is the question of the book. Who is Ruth? Is she becoming an Israelite part of God's people or not? And Ruth replies, and she told her all that had been done for her, saying, now, before we read verse 17, I want you to notice, this is really Really important because Ruth is about to mention something that Boaz said, 
But you'll notice we as the audience didn't hear it when Boaz said it. The author waits until Naomi is there to hear what Boaz said. So listen to verse 17. These six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said to me, you must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. Don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. You might circle that word, empty-handed. You know why that's so important? Because we've seen the word that was translated empty-handed there one other time in the book before this. You remember when it was? It was chapter one, verse 21. You might circle it back there. When Naomi said, I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. The author is making a clear point here and he does not want us to miss it. God does not leave his people empty. So Naomi says, verse 18, she replied, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out. For the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. In other words, sit tight, Ruth. It's not gonna be long. Today is the day. And interestingly, these are the last words we will hear in the book from either Ruth or Naomi as what unfolds next is out of their hands. And the screen goes dark at the end of chapter three and then opens up on chapter four, verse one with Boaz front and center. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. Now let's pause here, just make sure we're on the same page. When we see this word redeemer, we need to realize the background. I wish we had time to turn there, but you might write down Leviticus chapter 25 and Deuteronomy chapter 25. So Leviticus chapter 25, verses 24 through 27, talks about how when tragedy struck a family, a redeemer could keep their land in the family by redeeming it. Then Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses five through 10, talk about how if a brother dies without a son, then his family would be provided for by his nearest male relative who would redeem that family and take responsibility for providing a son to carry on that family. And there was a succession of relatives who could redeem. And the picture here is that there's another man who is in line before Boaz to be able to redeem Elimelech's property and family. So verse one says that Boaz goes, sits down at the town gate, and just like we read in chapter two, the language is dramatic, as behold, this other guy just so happens to come by, and Boaz said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. Oh, the language here is so great. Like where it says friend there, that's a Hebrew idiom that would basically be like saying, hey, Mr. So-and-so, and the author intentionally does not give us this guy's name. Boaz knows his name. The author likely knows his name, but he intentionally leaves the guy nameless. Kind of like when you forget somebody's name, maybe. You're supposed to know it. They're walking up to you and you're thinking, oh, what is, can't remember, I can't remember. You're going through the alphabet, like all kinds of potential names and it's not comes to you like, hey, bro. <laughs> What's up, man? Buddy, pal. And this is important because the author is intentionally creating like a negative impression of this guy. He's just like Mr. Nobody. So listen to what Boaz does. 
And he took 10 men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. So these elders would basically be witnesses to the transaction agreement that was about to take place. And doubtless others at the city gate who were walking by would now stop and listen in. By the end, you'd have a crowd watching these proceedings. And listen to what Boaz says. He's so sly. Verse three, he said to the redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one beside you to redeem it, and I come after you. Now, that sounds like an offer that Mr. What's-His-Name can't refuse. Which begs the question, what in the world is Boaz doing here? Because Boaz just said, Naomi, this widow from our relative Elimelech, has a pretty nice piece of land that is available for redemption, which would have been a no-brainer for any redeemer. As long as he had enough money to purchase the land, he could have that land and his family as his inheritance. And along with it, he would have Naomi. She would not require much from him, which means his investment would pay off big time for his family. So Mr. Random Dude says, the end of verse four, I will redeem it. And as soon as he says those words, our hearts sink. Like, what was Boaz thinking? He just laid out this deal on a golden platter and this guy took it. I mean, Boaz is noble and all, but this is taking things too far. Can you just imagine? And we don't know, but what if Ruth and Naomi had snuck into the background and were watching this unfold? Can you imagine the look on their faces when Mr. Nobody says, I will redeem it? It would be maddening if this book stopped at Ruth chapter four, verse four. And Ruth and Mr. Who Cares ride off together into the distance. Like, no. Ruth and Mr. What's-His-Name together while Boaz sits there dumbfounded. Naomi looks at him and says, you blew it, man. I used to be bitter. Now call me livid. Like, Fuming is my name. But thankfully, Boaz is not finished. He speaks up again. Verse five, Boaz said, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. (laughs) Boaz knows what he's doing. Hey, one small note. Now, he'd mentioned Naomi before, but then he says, on the day you buy the land from Naomi and from Ruth. Oh, did I mention Ruth? Yeah, this is not just a a widow in this picture to take care of. There's another woman to take care of. And did I mention she's a Moabite? Yeah, you remember that day when 24,000 Israelites were struck dead because of Moabite women? Yeah, she's one of them. And you will acquire her too. Boaz is good because this just changed everything. This is no longer merely about acquiring land. This is much deeper than that. Since Naomi was past child-rearing age, all the kinsman was thinking was that he would have to care for his widow in her old age that would not involve much. The investment he would get in return would be great. But if Ruth, who is of childbearing age, is in the picture, 
This man will be responsible for her and not just her, based on Deuteronomy 25, responsible for providing her with a son and the son would then assume the rights to that property and that land. So basically now, if this guy takes the land and Naomi and Ruth, then when he has a child with Ruth, that inheritance will go to that child and his descendants. So now he's facing the possibility of having to provide for both of these women in addition to potential children in the future, the first of which is gonna inherit all this land that he's about to pay for. And by the way, the child will come from a marriage to a Moabite. So all of a sudden, this deal isn't looking so great anymore. And we're sitting on the edge wondering if Boaz's plan for this conversation is going to work. And the Redeemer responds. The Redeemer said, verse six, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Ah, this is where the music starts to swell in the background. He did it, Boaz did it. Mr. So-and-so, see you later. Boaz, step to the front. Now, this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. So this handing over the sandal representing the right to yield property, land, family. So now the music is blaring in the background as Boaz takes off the sandal. The crowd erupts into applause. And then the scene dramatically quiets down and Boaz gives an impassioned speech, his last words in the book, verse nine. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilion and to Malon. So that's the first part, all the property of Elimelech and his sons belongs to Boaz. And then also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife. Did you see what just happened? Ruth the Moabite, the outcast foreigner servant, just became a part of the people of God. And the verse continues, to perpetuate the name of the dead and his inheritance, the name of the dead may be, not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. This family's name will not disappear. It will be maintained. Remember, that's the problem that was set up in the beginning of the book, and Boaz is set to solve it. He finishes his speech. Today, you are witnesses. And then verse 11, then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. What a prayer. May this childless woman be fertile. Rachel and Leah had 12 sons between the two of them who would lead the 12 tribes of Israel. It's quite a prayer. And then May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring the Lord will give you by this young woman. Ah, I wish we had time there. We could look at Genesis chapter 38, the story of Tamar, a Canaanite woman who carried on the line of Judah. So much there. But the point is, these witnesses pray for God's blessing on Boaz and Ruth's line. And then in verse 13, so Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. You know what's so interesting about this story? Like you have all this buildup, like all of chapter two to talk about one day in a field. 
all of chapter three to talk about one tense night on the threshing floor. All this buildup over 12 verses in chapter four at the town gate. And then in one verse, they get married and have a baby. Like just like that. And just like that, the two problems introduced at the start of the story are solved. Food and family. And did you notice the subtle picture the author gives us? Highlight or underline it, otherwise you will miss it. The Bible says right in the middle of verse 13 there, the Lord gave her conception. So we see the Lord, God, behind the scenes all throughout the book. But two times, the author makes sure we don't miss his presence. The first was back in chapter one, verse six, when the Lord provided food in Bethlehem. The Lord provided food. Now here in chapter four, verse 13, the Lord gave her conception. The Lord provided family. Don't miss it. The Lord God is the only one who can provide for your deepest needs. Verse 14 says, Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. So the scene now is a birthday party. There's a lot of ladies partying. And the spotlight shifts to Naomi. It's funny how Ruth and Boaz are hardly even mentioned here. Instead, the character in the spotlight at the start is brought back to the spotlight in the finish. The one who was woefully bitter is now wonderfully blessed. These women give credit where credit is due, blessed to be the Lord, and it's interesting that the child is actually called the Redeemer here. It's the only time in the Old Testament this term is used to refer to anyone but an adult. But the picture here is this child will be the one to inherit the property and carry on the family. Remember that. Verse 15 says, he shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons has given birth to him. What a great picture, better than seven sons, the number for perfection and completion in the Old Testament. This woman who had lost her two sons and come back to Bethlehem with a Moabite daughter-in-law had in her what was better than the most perfect sons she could have imagined. So this is the point where we all let out an ah and a sigh of relief. We look at each other and we say, that was a great story. The next verse, verse 16, says that Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. This is the moment where we start gathering our things to get up and walk out of the theater. We're ready to leave now. We rise from our seats, we're walking about. But have you ever gone to a movie and the credits start as you're walking out, but all of a sudden, something else pops up on the screen. Maybe you're almost out of the theater and you hear one of the characters come back on and you go running back in to see what's happening, a post-credit scene. So that's the feeling here when you get to verse 17. And the story's been awesome. You're getting up to walk out and listen to what happens. Verse 17 says, the women of the neighborhood gave him a name saying, I'm son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. Obed? He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. What? 
This is the story of how we got King David? Like Israel's most famous king? What Ruth is King David's great grandmother? <laughs> Who knew? This just took things to a whole new level. Do you realize what just happened? God just used a Moabite woman and an otherwise hopeless Israelite family to bring about the future king of Israel. And the book ends with a genealogy. I want you to read this with me. This is kind of the parts of the Bible we kind of skip over, right? Just a bunch of names. But count with me how many generations are mentioned here. Okay, count how many there are. Now, these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashab fathered, Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. Did you count them? How many of them are there? 10 generations. 10, symbolic when you think about 10 years of death and barrenness in Moab in the beginning of this story. Think about Israelite law that said no Moabites should be welcomed into the assembly down to the 10th generation. So the book ends with 10 generations from Perez and the book that began that in the days when the judges ruled ends with the introduction of Israel's most famous king. How about that? Is that incredible or what? Like, so here's... here's Here's the question. What, is, what does that mean? Like, why would God want this story to be preserved for thousands of years? And what in the world does this story have to do with you right where you're sitting today? And the answer is, this story is a part of a much, much bigger story that involves you right where you are sitting today. I want you to think about this word, Redeemer that we've seen all over the story, particularly today, this person who pays a price to provide for someone or something else, particularly someone in need. And this whole story hinges on three requirements of a redeemer. They're listed there in the notes that hopefully you received when you came in. So whether it was Boaz or Mr. What's-His-Name, in order to redeem, follow this in your notes, one must have the right to redeem, one had to be a near relative, close in the family line. Second, one must have the resources to redeem. So a redeemer had to be able to pay a redemption price. A redeemer needed the resources to purchase property, provide for a family. And then third, one must have the resolve to redeem, which is what Mr. So-and-so did not have. He had the right to redeem. From all we can tell, he had the resources to redeem, but he didn't have the resolve. It wouldn't be advantageous for him to redeem, so he didn't do it. It's too costly for him. Boaz, though, had all three, the right, the resources, and the resolve, and even though it was risky for him to marry a Moabite woman, he gladly took the risk. Why? Because of the other important word in the book, hased, loving kindness, a kind of love that willingly takes risks to provide for someone else. And so we have this portrait in the Bible of a redeemer who in his loving kindness provides for those in need, which leads to beautiful, 
powerful pictures of redemption at the end of the story. Like, think with me just for a minute about the contrast between Naomi at the start of the story and Naomi at the end of the story. And think about the pictures of redemption we have in the story. And each one of these pictures revolves around this baby who is now called a redeemer. So you have a redeemer that brings about redemption in these ways. See these pictures of redemption. One, God brings his people from death to life. The story of Ruth opens, just think about the contrast. Story of Ruth opens with three funerals. It closes with a wedding and a birth. God brings his people from death to life. God brings his people from curse to blessing. In Ruth chapter one, Naomi had the curse of all curses. She was a widow with no heir. In chapter four, she's holding an heir in her hands as the women bless her. God brings his people from curse to blessing. God brings his people from bitterness to happiness. Can you just imagine the smile on Naomi's face as she looks down at Obed? Don't call me bitter anymore. Call me ecstatic. Call me thrilled. God brings his people from bitterness to happiness. God brings his people from emptiness to fullness. At the end of chapter one, Naomi opens her hands and says to the women of Bethlehem, I have nothing. At the end of chapter four, Naomi folds up her arms around a precious little baby as the women of Bethlehem say, you have everything. From death to life, curse to blessing, bitterness to happiness, emptiness to fullness, and ultimately, God brings his people from despair to hope. And the story ends not by looking back at a painful past, but by looking forward into a joyful future through this child. But even that's not all. Because there is one more post credit scene that we cannot miss. You see, this story doesn't actually end in Ruth chapter 4. Turn with me over to Matthew chapter 1. The first book, the first chapter of the New Testament. Matthew writes this book specifically to Jewish readers who would have been familiar with all the stories in the Old Testament, including this story. So let me show you in the Bible the next time we see Boaz and the next time we see Ruth. Start with me in Matthew chapter one, verse five. In this list of names we read, and Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab. Boaz, whose mom, by the way, was Rahab, the Gentile prostitute of Judges chapter two. Do you think that had something to do with why Boaz was so sensitive to the needs of an outcast, despised Moabite woman named Ruth? And Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth. So there they are, Boaz, Obed, and Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king, which is where the book of Ruth ended. But here the names continue, all the way down to verse 16, where we read, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. 
If only the Old Testament hearers could have seen where the real end of the story was going. They would have been sitting in the theater for a long time, but this love story hidden away in the Old Testament is intended to point us to a much greater love story highlighted in the New Testament where we see a picture of our hope for redemption. So listen closely. Don't miss this. The story of Ruth is not ultimately about redemption through a baby born in Bethlehem named Obed. The story of Ruth is ultimately about redemption through a baby born in Bethlehem named Jesus. The story of Ruth ultimately points us to the love of Jesus, our Redeemer. So what does this story have to do with you and me? Here you and I sit, sinners in a world of suffering, separated from God, destined for eternal death and suffering as the curse of sin in our lives and in the world around us. But ladies and gentlemen, that does not have to be the end of your story. Sin and pain and suffering do not have to be the end of our story. Do you know why? Because our Redeemer has come and his name is Jesus. So let's ask the questions. One, does he have the right to redeem us? Absolutely he does. Jesus is like us in every way, born like us. This is the miracle of Christmas. God has come to us in a robe of human flesh like us. He is near to us, our kinsman. Two, does he have the resources to redeem us? Absolutely he does. He has perfect power and complete authority over skies and seas, over sickness and disease, over sin and suffering, over death and the grave. Without question, Jesus has the resources to redeem us. So three, does he have the resolve to redeem us? Does Jesus have the resolve to redeem you and me? See him on a cross where he willingly took the judgment you and I deserve, the death you and I deserve upon himself as he suffered to pay the redemption price for all our sin. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the love story of all love story. The baby born in Bethlehem, Jesus has the right, the resources, and the resolve to redeem you right where you are sitting right now. And... He has done it. Jesus has done it. Jesus has paid the price for you. Now, just the person next to you in front of you beside you, like you, right where you're sitting, he's paid the price for you. A sinner estranged from God that you might spend eternity in the family of God. Which means that for all who trust in Jesus for redemption, we have hope. For we know that our Redeemer will always provide for his people. We have hope. Why? Because our Redeemer will always provide for his people. I do not know all that you have gone through in your life. And I do not know all that you're going through right now. 
But I do know this. God knows. And he is able to bring his people from death to life. God is able to bring you from curse to blessing. God is able to bring you from bitterness to happiness. God is able to bring you from emptiness to fullness. God is able to bring you from despair to hope, which means we can trust him in the worst of times, in the days and the months and the years when we may not understand and we may wonder why. I think about so many different circumstances. I know people in our church family have walked through this last year wondering why, wondering at how will things ever get better. And we may see some days little or no hope on the horizon, but we can know this. In those moments when God seems farthest from us, we can know that God is faithfully plotting for our good, for our joy. And his path to our joy may not always be straight and may not always be smooth, but in the end, his path to our joy is always sure. His path to our joy, to your joy, is guaranteed. Which may not mean that every story, every struggle in our lives will end up perfectly in this world, but that's kind of the point because this world is not the end of our story. There's a reason why Job, in the midst of his pain and suffering, said in Job 19.25, I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end, he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh, I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes. There is coming a day when we will see our Redeemer's face and he will wipe away every tear from our eyes and we will be with him forever and ever. We can trust God in the worst of times because we know the best of times are yet to come. We have hope. For we know our Redeemer will always provide for his people. And so we spread hope. For we know that our Redeemer is actively pursuing all peoples. Oh, don't miss the point. Because this love story is bigger than just you or me. The book of Ruth is not just a story about God's love for one Moabite woman. It's a story about God's love for every woman and man in the world. For people in need all around the world for people who are hurting in every neighborhood and people who are longing for hope in every nation for every single person and every single people group on the planet we have the greatest news in the world there is hope in Jesus the Redeemer there is hope for redemption for new life for blessing for happiness for fullness that lasts forever so church let's spread this hope starting right where we live and let me ask you, who have you invited to come with you to church on Christmas Eve? Like, who have you invited who doesn't know Christ? Like, far more important than family traditions is seeing people come to faith in Christ forever. So, I've serviced at all our campuses. T- 
10 options between all of our campuses where we're proclaiming hope. Here at Tyson's, we'll invite people to be baptized just like we did at Easter and do every week. Why? Because we have the greatest story in the world to share a story of hope for all who trust in Jesus. So let's spread this story. Invite friends, family members, co-workers to come with you Christmas Eve, one of our campuses. And all throughout this next week, you and I will have countless opportunities to share hope through the story of Jesus. So let's do it. And let's not stop this week. Let's spend our lives and our church spreading hope in our hurting world, whether it's with our neighbor across the street, our coworker in the office next door, the orphan in need of a family in Ethiopia, or the man or woman in the Himalayas who's never even heard the gospel, realizing that when we spread hope, God is using our lives to change others' stories. Don't miss the beauty here. Ruth, Boaz, Naomi had no idea how their lives would be a part of a story so astounding. Part of a story. They were part of a story that was so much greater than themselves. And ladies and gentlemen, so are you. So are you. Right where you're sitting right now, At first, when you receive this redemption, some of you have never put your trust in Jesus as your redeemer. And today, you have an opportunity to do that. Today, you have an opportunity to change your story forever. I mentioned earlier, it is no accident that you are here right now. God has brought some of you here today to see that you have been pursued by God himself. That Jesus has made a way for you to be redeemed and he wants to change your story today forever. And not just your story, but the stories of others through your life as you spread hope. Like I think about what we celebrated earlier in work in Ethiopia. There are children who are living, churches that are thriving, movement that is happening in a country 7,000 miles away from here because of the way God is using you to spread hope. And it just makes me wonder, as I look across this church and imagine, what kind of massive postscript might be written when over 10,000 people in greater Washington, D.C., throw aside the pleasures, pursuits, and possessions of this world, and we spend our lives making the hope of our God known in a hurting world. I'll come to the end of Ruth and realize God is using our ordinary lives to write an extraordinary story. So, McLean Bible Church family, let's hold fast to the hope that we have, even in the hardest of times. Let's hold fast to hope, and let's give our lives spreading that hope here in greater Washington, D.C., and to the ends of the earth and see what God does far beyond what we could imagine. So let's pray. (laughs) Let me ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes with me here and other campuses. And I I wanna ask everyone a question. Between you and God, I want to ask you this question. Have you, right where you are sitting, have you trusted in Jesus as your Redeemer? Have you trusted in Jesus to give you new life, to save you from your sin, to give you the hope of eternal life in Him, to lead you as Lord of your life, 
And if the answer to that question is not a resounding yes in your heart, then I, I want to invite you today to trust in Jesus as Redeemer, to see that God has brought you here to this moment for this reason, that you might know his redemption. So I just want to invite you right where you're sitting just to pray right now and to say to God in your heart, just to say to him, dear God, I know I am a sinner. That I have sinned against you and I'm separated from you. But today I believe that you have sought after me. Today I believe that Jesus died on the cross for my sin. And he rose from the grave in victory over sin and death. And today I trust in him as my Lord and my Redeemer. Give me new life in him. Now and forever. Oh, if you just prayed that to God with our heads bowed and eyes closed here in this room and other campuses, let me, just, let me ask you to do something just with our heads bowed and eyes closed. Would you just lift up your hand before God right now where you're sitting, amen. Those of you who's saying yes today, I'm trusting in Jesus as my redeemer, amen. Oh God, I praise you for hands I see, hands I can't see at other campuses. You see every hand, every heart. Thank you for your love for us and specifically for these who are receiving your love personally in this way today. I praise you for drawing them to yourself. Drawing so many of us to yourself by your grace. And I pray that you would give them, others who have not been baptized, courage to publicly say today, yes, Jesus is my redeemer. Courage to be baptized and to make that profession public. And God, at the same time, I pray for every person within the sound of my voice that they would know your love as Redeemer day after day after day after day. I pray particularly for those who have walked through really hard days. This last year, some who are walking through really hard days right now, some who have been for a long time. God, I pray that they would know your fullness, your joy, and your peace, and your life, and your love that supersedes circumstances. I pray that you'd give them faith, trust in you when it seems like there's so many questions and so much confusion about when or how this is ever going to get resolved. God, I pray, I pray that you just give them faith as they look to you to know that you are with them and that you are working moment by moment, day by day for their good, that you would draw them into deeper and deeper intimacy with you, trust in you, and experience of your love as we long for the day when our redemption will be complete and when sin and pain and suffering will be no more. And God, we pray that you would use us from this day until that day to spread hope, even in the midst of suffering, to spread hope that there is a king, a redeemer who has conquered sin and suffering and death. 
and you would use this to make that story of hope known. To people right around us, we pray that God, coworkers and friends and family members would come to know the hope of Christ this week, this Christmas week. Please, God, bring it about. Around our tables, in our Christmas Eve gatherings, please bring it about. And, and in the days to come, in the next year, God, would you use us to do immeasurably more than all we can ask or imagine for the spread of your hope and your glory as our Redeemer here in greater Washington, D.C. and among the nations. We pray this in the name of Jesus, our Redeemer. Amen. Thanks for joining us today on Radical with David Platt. As you may know, Radical exists to serve the church in accomplishing the mission of Christ by mobilizing churches to take the gospel to unreached peoples scattered across the globe. We carry out that mission in a variety of ways by providing thousands of free resources in multiple languages at Radical.net through catalytic events like Secret Church, through training and equipping opportunities like the all-new Radical Gap Year, and by connecting biblically faithful and practically effective efforts among the unreached with the gospel resources they need. And we simply cannot do this without you. So as the year ends, we invite you to help us take the good news of the gospel where it's never been. If you would, consider giving to Radical today. Your year-end giving in 2019 will help make Jesus known where he is not yet known in 2020. Thanks again for joining us. That's all for today's episode. I'm your host, Thomas Bowen. And until next time, join us at Radical.net.